I find that people are super mean to themselves when they're super nice to everyone else. Talk to yourself as if you were a friend. I created a, an acronym because I love acronyms and it's vary your response. So validate, acknowledge, and reassure yourself. Because when you can be kind to yourself, responsive, validating, all of those things, you feel better. Hello and welcome back to A Sharper Life. I'm your host, Nikki Sharp, a two-time best-selling author, transformation coach, and wellness expert. And I just want to say, if you are new here and this is your first episode that you are listening to, welcome. I appreciate you for being here. And I really want to thank those of you who have subscribed and are following the show week after week, because I am just getting so many incredible messages and reviews sharing what you love. Now, today I wanted to highlight two reviews that really have spoken to the power of this show. And I so appreciate hearing what you have to say. So this is from Lulu Mags with the subject of inspirational. And she says, I have followed Nikki for years. This podcast brings her to life with raw insights, amazing tips. It's like having a friend give you the life advice that you've been speaking. And another one is from Me Sup Girl. And she says, love listening to Nikki, always packed with clear conscience info along with inspirational and motivational messages. Definitely, definitely look forward to each week's new podcast and find myself listening to the older ones over. So I just want to say thank you both so much for your incredible reviews. And if you are listening on Spotify, click the follow button so you don't miss an episode and tap the five stars button. And if you listen on iTunes, scroll down past the episodes where it says write a review. And if you message me on Instagram with your review, I will do my best to share it along with my gratitude on an upcoming episode. So today on A Sharper Life, I have one of the most powerful interviews I think I've done to date. And that is because I am speaking with Dr. Nina Savelle, who is a psychoanalyst, author, and radio host. She has a master's degree in clinical psychology and a doctorate in psychoanalysis. So she knows a thing or two about this topic. And we are going deep into the realm of food challenges, eating disorders, overcoming fear of food. And Dr. Nina is such a powerful guest because she is a recognized and renowned expert and founder of the Binge Cure Method, which is dedicated to helping people worldwide overcome binge eating and heal their relationship with food. And Dr. Nina has also written over 50 articles on the topic of eating disorders and has been featured in Psychology Today, Good Housekeeping, The Los Angeles Times, Prevention, Real Simple, Huffington Post, and she's been a guest expert on the Dr. Drew podcast. So in this powerful interview, we are talking about what your cravings actually mean. And this is something you will not want to miss. You're, I would say we both are sharing really deeply and vulnerable stories about our own eating disorder recovery and journeys and really how that propelled both of us into teaching what we do. And you will learn some absolutely mic dropping truths on how to stop emotional eating and walk away with truly actionable tips to change your relationship with food. So without further ado, please welcome Dr. Nina on A Sharper Life. 
Dr. Nina, it is such a pleasure to have you here. And I know that we are both so incredibly passionate about this topic and everything we're going to be sharing. Could you give the listeners just a little, I guess, download on who you are and why you are so passionate about helping people with food, with their challenges, eating disorders? Well, I would love to. To answer the question, I really have to start when I was five years old, when I suddenly and seemingly randomly decided that my legs were too big. And I was a normal weight kid. I was like a nor- like skinny even kid. I wasn't allowed to watch TV. My mom did not read magazines except for like Time magazine. So I had no media influences. And yet at the age of five, I suddenly decided I was too big. And somehow if I were thinner... I would be better. And by the time I was a teenager, uh, I was full-blown poster child for eating disorders because I would go from restricting to binging, to binging and purging, to restricting. And the cycle went on and on. And when I look at my, my journals from those times, every page is filled with numbers. It was like calories wow. I ate, calories I burned. The weight I was, the weight I was going to be. So I was always on some crazy restrictive diet. Eventually my willpower would fail and I would eat the kitchen. Sometimes I'd purge Mm -hmm. and went on and on and on. Finally, I went to therapy in college, but I went for anxiety. I talked to my therapist about, you know, all the things like guys and my parents and the future and my career and what was going to, all the things, except I never told her what was going on with food. She had no idea She was talking to the poster child for eating disorders. By the time I left treatment, all my eating disorders were gone. And not once, not a single time had I ever, ever talked about food. And people say, how is this possible? How can you get rid of all eating disorders without ever talking about food? And I tell them, because food was never the problem. It was the solution to the problem, whether I was restricting it or binging on it or whatever I was doing with it. It was the solution to the real problem was my relationship with myself, which was super perfectionistic and nothing I did was ever good enough. And half the time I was just eating to get away from my own mean voice. And by the way, why at age five did I suddenly randomly decide that I was too big? Well, my parents are college professors And they were very academic and very quiet and thoughtful. And there were a lot of books. And I was a normal kid. And I was always being told, like, oh, my God, calm down. You're too dramatic. You're too sensitive. You're too big in your feelings. And my five-year-old mind took the you're too much message and turned it into, oh, I'm physically too much. If there were less of me, I would somehow be more acceptable. And so that is what motivated me to specialize as a therapist and later as a psychoanalyst, which is a therapist on steroids. Um, <laughs> I, I was going to ask, what's the the main difference between, and especially in treatment, the main difference between oh. being a psychoanalyst and a, a did I say that correctly? Psychoanalyst. Psychoanalyst, yeah. Yeah, psychoanalyst and, a, and a therapist. Yeah. Well, I wanted to become a, a, a therapist because I really wanted to help other people, you know, deal with their emotions and with themselves and their, their sense of self in, in a way that 
didn't focus on their behavior, that they're recognizing that their behavior was an outcome of these messages and ideas about themselves. And of course, we live in a culture that says, hey, you're not allowed to have feelings. You're, you're weak if you have them and you're strong if you push them away. And so what do we do when feelings are just reactions to situations and we're human in the world? And if we have all these prohibitions, what do we do? That's why we have so many issues with problems with food and addictions and all kinds of things, because as a culture, we don't know how to deal with our feelings. So that's a whole side topic we can go into later. <laughs> the difference, you know, I'm going to explain the difference between being a, a therapist and a psychoanalyst by giving you an example. Um, well, I'm going to give you an example. and I'm going to tell you what one of my patients said. He had done therapy for, and he said, hey, you know what? Therapy is like snorkeling. You get under the surface. You see some cool things down there. It's good. But he said, psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis, it's like deep sea diving to the bottom of the ocean where everything is pitch black and you can't see a thing and you got to shine a light on what the heck is down there and figure out what's going on in the dark, deep recesses of your mind. And I love that analogy because, you know, we don't do deep sea diving alone. You need a guide. And so much is misunderstood about psychoanalysis. People think Freud, but comparing Freud to contemporary analysis is like comparing like a Model T Ford to a Tesla. Like, right. yes, they are both cars. So here's my example. A woman came in to, to see me and she said, hey, Dr. Nina, maybe your other people have issues like emotional eating and they, they have they have problems with their emotions. She said she, that was not her. She told me that she was a food addict and that she could prove it. Now, I don't believe in food addiction, maybe eating addiction, which is different. But I said, OK, I'm all ears. Tell me. She said she was watching TV the night before. Nothing was bothering her. She had a perfectly fine day at work. And all of a sudden, Ben and Jerry's is calling her name calling my name. I'm addicted to Chunky Monkey. So I said, well, uh, you know, what were you watching on TV before Ben and Jerry started calling for you? She's like, my favorite show, Charmed. So since she was watching her favorite guilty pleasure, she was perfectly well enjoying herself. There was no reason or so she thought that she would want to down a pint of Ben and Jerry's. So what was the episode about? Oh, it's when the, this demon breaks the bond between the sisters. They start fighting. It gets really nasty. It gets really contentious. And she stopped and she looked at me and I looked at her because in that moment she realized and she knew I knew that watching the show activated her own issues about her sisters. But before she was consciously aware that she was being triggered, she went to ice cream for comfort and distraction. Had we just been okay, next time ice cream calls your name, just go brush your teeth, go take a walk, breathe mindfully, all of those things, we never would have gotten to the root issue, which was hidden from her. It was unconscious, but it's what was driving this behavior. And so psychoanalysts look at what is hidden from us in the dark deeps of our, depths of our minds and shine that light so that we can know what we're dealing with and discover where it came from in the service of changing it in the present. 
I love the I love the analogy actually that you gave. Very profound and very I would say same same but different. Obviously, I'm I'm not a doctor. I'm not a therapist. I've never touted to be one. And yet, because I've been through my own eating disorder journey, two of them body dysmorphia, and didn't have the correct help to do it. I learned to become the scuba diver by myself, which was a much longer and arduous journey that I think, you know, working with someone like me as people do, or working obviously with you, Dr. Nina, what I'd like to know is how can someone identify if they even have a a challenge, a problem? And I, I hate to use the word problem, but it's, I work with clients so often who don't even realize that they might be binging or emotional eating, and they have a hard time distinguishing between real hunger and emotional hunger. So I'm curious your thoughts on that for for the listeners on how to help them. It's very common. I actually spoke to a group of people who were in a, a like a, a weight, it's not really a diet, but it's kind of a diet plan. And I said, you guys know, have you even heard of binge eating, binge eating disorder, the most prevalent eating disorder there is. And they they were just like, no, we've never heard of binge eating disorder, which is shocking to me. But okay, so th- the difference is uh, physical hunger is physical. We feel it in our bodies. You know, we get the gurgling stomach or uh, we get lightheaded. Personally, I start losing my words. We just, we feel a physical change in our bodies that tell us, hey, you need to eat something. And we're not so picky about it. Like when really physically hungry and, you know, the only thing is an apple available, but you don't love apples, well, you're going to have the apple because you're hungry and done. So that's physical hunger. It is physical located in our bodies. But emotional hunger is when something looks good or sounds good or you're going to eat it because it's going to make you feel better. It's going to make you you know, comfort you or make you happy, or it's going to distract you or reward you. So emotional hunger is located in more of our minds than our bodies. And it's when we are going to eat something to change the way we emotionally feel. And the biggest misconception about emotional eating is that, you know, that like the typical, oh, I I had a breakup. Where's the ice cream? It's often things are going on that are just make us uncomfortable. We don't really know why, because again, we live in that culture that says you're not allowed to have feelings or we feel guilty for what we're feeling. Men feel guilty for vulnerability or sadness. They're not supposed to have that. Women aren't supposed to get mad and angry. So uh, we eat something, get mad at ourselves and displace it. Um, so it's really important to look at the at those roots, like what is motivating this? What would you be thinking of if you weren't thinking about food? What would be on your mind? What would you be worried about? What do you know that you don't want to know? So when it comes to something like the story you you shared of the woman eating the Ben and Jerry's, you and I have both done this personally and worked with clients who have gone to the kitchen. I I was on a call with a client the other day, actually, and she was like, yeah, you know, eight, 16 packets of my kids fruit roll up thing. So in that moment, do you have any tips or advice for someone to tap into, I want to say the, the emotional 
it's obviously it's, it's a different thing than just the emotional thing because you're trying to get to like what's really going on behind, but it's how do you get to what's going on behind one, if you're numbing yourself in that moment and two, if you're truly not aware. So anything that people can do on their own in those really tough moments. Absolutely. First, I want to say that deprivation always leads to binging, which is why the diet binge cycle is the diet binge cycle. So sometimes we're, we're eating the thing we can't have because we tell ourselves we can't have it. So of course you want it more. So that's part of it. But in the first decade that I was treating patients, I started noticing that what they chose to eat in a binge told us a lot about what their emotional needs, conflicts, feelings actually were. And I just noticed it over and over and over and over. I'm actually writing a book on this concept about the science and the psychology of it. So I developed my food mood formula, which is this. So we're drawn to normally three different types of food. So sort of smooth and creamy, ice cream, yogurt, whatever, um, filling, like think you know, burgers or cake or muffins or anything that pizza, pasta, anything that takes up space within us. And the last is crunchy. So chips, crackers, pretzels, what have you. When you are seeking something creamy, it really isn't like it's not ice cream you really want. It's comfort. So smooth and creamy is associated with a need for comfort. If that's your go-to, you've got to look at other ways to comfort yourself that do not involve eating. Like, how would you comfort a friend? Would you say, oh, you're struggling, you're suffering? Hey, have some ice cream. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. Um, the foods that take up space within are correlated with loneliness or filling a void. So if those are the go-to, you want to look at what are the holes in your life and find new ways to fill them rather than symbolically filling up with food. Crunchy, anything that makes us crunch down with a bite, that's associated with forms of anger. So frustration, irritation, annoyance, rage, you know, there are a whole range of different intensities of anger. Want to look at those. Um, and so that is a, is a way for you to start checking in with yourself. Well, you know, what actually is going on with me? And most of the time, and then I'll get to chocolate because that's the question I always get. Um, most of the time, it's more than one type of food, but there's generally a go-to, you know, or someone who only has an ice cream with nuts. Okay. Primarily it's comfort, but maybe you got a little bit of frustration there that you're mm -hmm. expressing. So chocolate. So chocolate is usually either creamy, creamy center or milk chocolate that goes with creamy smooth. Mm -hmm. Or uh, a lot of us will only have chocolate with nuts or Dark chocolate has a bit of a crunch. So it really does fit the formula. And maybe, and this goes for candy that's not chocolate, maybe you want to look at the sweetness in your life that you may be missing and not the sweetness of sugar, but the sweetness of you know, connection and fulfillment and love. Maybe that's what you're missing. We can't just go, hmm, I'll go to the store and get some love. You know, we can't get more love, but we can get more of whatever. So really checking in with yourself. I, I love that example. So I, I actually would always tell people I have a fun party trick. 
And I would say, tell me your craving and I'll tell you about your life. Exactly that. And I just didn't ever, I didn't know about the, the really filling one, but it was always because it, it, what I learned was typically there was, but now I see how relevant that kind of middle category is, but it was like, you know, do you crave more sweet just in general, if you had to make a decision or more of that, either salty, crunchy, or even maybe it's sweet, but crunchy and within that like moment i could say yeah you're really stressed out but also the lack of like self love self care and people were always like mind blown by it so i love that you just explained that in an even better way because i think that's so poignant to be able to look at which category like i know for myself i am the crunch 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 and we we actually call our cat captain crunch cuz he like crunches so loud but that is all i really well Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I no longer really crave the crunch as much. I now realize that like a burger or like a slice of pizza is the thing. And I'm like, that's, I'm going to do some, some scuba diving into my own mind. I, I, I love the just analysis. And I think what's important for people listening is that everything that Dr. Nina is sharing, and as I kind of add my own stories here, these are all things to help you get into your own life, to become, I like to say, become inquisitive of your own life. Try try a thing on, like try a thought on, try an exercise on. And if it works, great. If it doesn't, try another one on. So that being said, when we talk about, let's say, binge eating versus you know, the restrictive side of it, what would you say is the biggest misconception about those? Either way, the biggest misconception about any kind of eating disorder is that it's about food. If you are turning to food, you are turning away from something else. There is a reason. If you are turning away from food, there's also a reason. And to be, I like to say, be curious, not critical. I say it so much that someone got me, made me a hat that says curious, not critical. <laughs> I don't have it here. Otherwise, I would put it on right now. Be inquisitive. Yes, be curious. I like to say, let, let's be a detective of your mind because detectives do not search around going, oh, that's a weird clue. They say, okay, that's a clue. That tells us something else. So being curious, okay, what what do you want more of? What What is missing in your life? What are the holes? What are the emptinesses? What are you distracting yourself from? I, I once had a group uh, and in, for for women who struggle with binge eating, and there was this one woman in the group who kept saying, "No, no, no, I, I don't. I, there's no other reason. You know, even Freud said sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. There's no other reason. I just need to lose those twenty pounds. If I could just stop eating X, Y, Z, then I'd lose the twenty pounds, and I'd be happy. Which, of course, is the illusion the diet industry sells us. The illusion that if we just change our weight, we change our lives." Anyway, at the end of this group, she said, you know, and this was like 20 minutes before the end of the last group of the last session. And she said, you know, I think that if I were not focused on these 20 pounds, I think I'd probably be thinking that I want to divorce my husband. Right. <laughs> so I might drop right there. <laughs> she really wants to lose her husband, but that's yeah. just scary for her. So she was looking at like, you know, focusing on those 20 pounds and focusing on what she was eating because she wasn't willing to look until that moment at what was eating at her. 
So the biggest misconception is that eating disorders are about food or that they are about vanity. It's, it's, a, they're all so symbolic. You know, even bulimia is, can be a conflict about needs. I mean, consciously it's, oh, I can have my cake and eat it too and get rid of it and I won't gain weight. Unconsciously it's, I want more in life, it could be, but you know what, I feel guilty about that or conflicted about that. So I'm just gonna get, I'm gonna have the more, but I'm gonna get rid of that. So I'm getting rid of my neediness symbolically. No one is thinking that consciously, but when you start looking at, well, what's unconsciously going on and you process that, guess what? You, you, you don't need bulimia as a way of symbolically expressing your conflict. So, you know, whatever's going on with food, it's symbolic. It's not the problem. And then what about in terms of control? Because obviously an eating disorder or any form of disordered eating, like I know so many people would be like, I, I don't have an eating disorder, which is fine. And so many people I know would also say, no, like I don't have disordered eating. I'm just scared of certain foods, right? So when it comes to the control aspect of an eating disorder, what would you tell someone who's in that cycle of it's less about like which style or version or what they're doing. And it's the like, I want control. I want control. Cause I mean, hi, don't we all a little bit? Of course. I mean, one of the scariest things about COVID was that sense of not knowing, not having control, not being able to, to, to know where the threat was, you know, or to deny it or to what have you. But um, I would say to someone who has, who's focused on control, well, I have a magic wand, not near me, but it's across the room. <laughs> but if I had it near me, well, what I say is I've been told this magic wand works just very slowly. But if it worked right now and I could take away all thoughts of food, weight, body image, all the things, if I could take those out of your mind, what would you be focused on? What in your life are you feeling out of control with or you don't have control or you feel helpless that is being displaced into your relationship with food? And it's always something. It's you know, my boss or, you know, my, I, my kids, or I, you know, I'm trying to have a kid and I can't get pregnant. I feel so out of control, but no, I'm not focusing on that. I'm focusing on, I'm going to be in control of my body. So, so often control and focus on willpower and control, because it's not about willpower. It's not about control. It's not about food is a displacement from other areas of our lives, but it's scary to think about that. It's easier to think that we have the illusion of control or the fantasy of control or feel out of control with food than it is to think about, oh no, I feel out of control in these areas of my life. So in terms of going back to your, your story of being five years old, it's interesting because I, I mean, I have a similar, but different story. I don't have that like very defining moment, but it's very clear of all the self-work that I've done that there was some stuff that happened in my childhood, which make, made me seek fame and made me want to be a model and be skinny. And, and there is also truth that I genuinely love beauty and I love magazines and I love the art of it and the community, the team, the collaboration. I didn't know that when I was 13 years old, though, trying to become a model. So a lot of this is tied to 
our childhood, right? From that three months old till seven, when when our you know form of identity is becoming who we are. How do you coach people or work with them to go back to the the memories? And to literally like extract like you did from being five years old so that you can be like, oh, right, that's what it, no, now I can change the meaning. How do you help people through that? Well, my party trick is tell me your first memory and I'll tell you what your conflict is in the present. Oh, I love it. So there's so often, what do we choose to remember? We can choose to remember so much. Generally, what we what we choose to remember, what what sticks in our minds is something that tells us a lot about our current situation. A huge misconception about psychoanalysis is that it's always about the past. It is it is only about the past insofar as it affects our present, because if you had issues in your past, you're going to tolerate or reenact unbeknownst to yourself things in the present. If you had a judgmental, critical parent but didn't pay attention to you, you might become judgmental of yourself. You might seek out judgmental, critical others, you you know, in the hopes that you will get from these people what you never got from the original people. So it's really looking at putting one foot in the past. What happened? What do you remember? If Or even using the food mood formula. Well, where did these holes come from? Or where did you learn about, what were the messages about anger? What, what were the traumas? And everyone has trauma. We just have mistaken big T trauma for trauma. There's big T trauma and little T trauma. And how is it continuing to affect you in the present? So it's, it's really looking at you know, what happened. What do you remember? You know, what comes to mind about this, the, the things you're grappling with now that may give us clues about the past? For example, a lot of times in work, we we unconsciously bring our experience or expectation or hopes of our original families into our work environment. So people will think their bosses are really critical or their 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 coworkers are really, you know, like they have some sibling rivalry with their coworkers and they just we we unbeknownst to ourselves just repeat the past. So it's really looking at, okay, you have this issue with your boss or this issue with your coworker, or you married someone or you're with someone who's very similar to an unresolved relationship from the past. Let's look at the original wound and heal that because then that will have everything to do with how you feel differently in the present. And when we learn to be nurturing to ourselves, kind to ourselves, encourage, support, and be generous with ourselves, when we feed our souls, then we don't need to eat or focus on our bodies as a way of expressing or enacting something from the past that we don't even know is still affecting us. I mean, just such powerful stuff that you're you're sharing. And I'm grateful that I've learned all of this throughout my journey. And I'm grateful to be able to be doing this podcast, to be sharing this, because I do think like when I was going through everything that I was, you know, these sort of conversations weren't being had. And and it was, yeah, very much about like, oh, you're depressed. Well, okay, we're going to put you on antidepressant medication. And as I've shared in my journey before, I went to an eating disorder clinic in London and they were like, it's a six-month waiting list. And I was like, um, okay, like I don't have six months at this rate. 
And so I just, I really honor and thank you, Dr. Nina, for everything you're sharing. So follow-up question on that then. If someone is, or in your experience, if someone has had, let's say, anorexia or orthorexia, and I, that's a good one to get into because the orthorexia thing, has, I think, has taken over a lot. But if someone has that and they've dealt with that, managed that, how often do you see it getting transferred to something else? Maybe then it turned, you know, they turn to overexercising or which they think is healthy or, you know, going out and partying because, hey, like I'm, you know, young and fun or even drugs. Do you see that happening that that it like migrates the, the addiction? Only when it really hasn't been resolved. So if you're talking about orthorexia, which I actually talk about in my first book, Food for Thought, um, and you understand it not as like wanting to eat clean is in some way um, about managing internal messiness, like wanting to disavow anything dirty or messy, but you don't, again, it's unconscious. No one is thinking that. But if you, if you just allow yourself to eat more variety of foods, then of course, if you haven't resolved the, the basic conflict, it's going to get put into yet another type of addiction or conflict. I see that all the time. That's why people go from anorexia to bulimia to binge eating disorder. If you don't resolve the root, the, the analogy I like the best for my work, in addition to the deep sea diving, is that of, of a weed and a root. So the weed is whatever the behavior is. The root is what you need to get to, but it is underground. It is hidden. You can't see it. It's in the dark. So if you just pluck the weed and just change your behavior, yeah, it's going to grow back, maybe in a different form. That's why you have to dig out that proverbial root, which of course we can't see like our unconscious hidden minds. We got to get to that. Once you get to that, you are liberated. I, I like to say, I don't believe in recovery because you're in recovery. You're in recovery and you always have to think about it. And who wants that? No, liberation is when you say, you know what? I used to do that. I don't anymore. It's great. This feels much better. So when totally you great. get to the root, no, you don't have the, 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 it doesn't show up in a different form. And do you believe in actual addictions? Like I was, I was listening to a podcast today. I was going for a walk and really fascinating where the, it's th two people. No, it wasn't a podcast. It was an audiobook. And these two people, one is a doctor or, or something, but you know, highly all the letters behind his name sort of thing and had done like 20 years of research for this book. And they were saying that they actually don't believe that people become addicted. And what I, what I'm hearing where that could be somewhat correct is that it's, if you don't deal with the, the stuff behind that's causing it, then sure you might be addicted to something, but do you have a similar belief or do you like genuinely think people become addicted to stuff? Oh, people become addicted to them, but they, they are not, it's not in your brain. It's in your mind. So I actually co-edited a book called Beyond the Primal Addiction. And it was, you know, each chapter was on a different addiction, but the, the underlying premise of each chapter and so of the book is that addictions are, are maladaptive coping mechanisms that we use these addictive behaviors or substances even um, 
as a way of coping, uh, just like an eating disorder or any other negative coping strategy. And that when you find new ways of coping and being with yourself, the addiction goes away. And uh, Lance Dotas, who's also a psychoanalyst who's done a lot of work in the field of addiction, uh, people will say, well, what about, you know, something like heroin? That's in your that's in your brain. And his answer to that is there were all these studies that uh, when Vietnam vets came back addicted to heroin from Vietnam, the ones who had support never touched heroin again. The ones who didn't have support just went back into the addiction. So it speaks to that beyond whatever the physicality of addiction is, there is a huge mental component. And I believe from my 20 years of experience and my experience of feeling like I was addicted to food and all my patients who everyone comes in going like, oh, I, I'm addicted to food. No, you're addicted to using food to resolve something. Um, but so my experience shows me that you can go from feeling addicted to feeling free, to being free. And, and how, mind, oh, I was going to say, mind, how, how can you do that? How do you go from that feeling? I'm feeling addicted, which, you know, when we feel something, the mind tells us it's truth, it's reality. So how do we go from that to realizing that it's not the actual truth? You know, I had someone who used to say um, that sugar was her personal crack. And she said, I'm addicted to sugar. And she told me that, oh, the studies show that when rats are given the choice between heroin or cocaine or sugar, they have sugar every time. And I said, of course they do. Rats are not motivated by getting high. Rats do not want to get buzzed. Rats are motivated by survival. Sugar is food. They will go to sugar every time. You are not addicted to sugar. You just feel like it. You're not eating spoonfuls of sugar. You know, if someone gave you spoonfuls of sugar, you're not going to eat it. That would be an addictive behavior. She was eating cookies and she was in a particular kind of cookies. And she was focusing on cookies and her feeling of, you know, addiction because it was the only fun in her life. It was the only pleasure in her life. It was, it distracted her from the pain in her life. And so her, when her, when she was able to look at what those cookies did for her, because I say binge eating is a frenemy. It is, or any, any, it's a friend. It does something for you. It also hurts you. But when you can look at how it is a friend to you and find new ways to be a friend to yourself, new ways to cope, new ways to be with yourself, new ways to think about yourself. Ice cream stops calling your name. You, you sugar is no longer your personal crack and you can just live your life and wake up and think about your day and not your diet. And that's liberation. And that's amazing. I love it. And so are there any like specific tangible steps that you have to overcome emotional eating because what what I love and I want to say this is everything you just shared those are really thought provoking questions right and and sitting there and being like okay like where do I not have fulfillment in my life xyz and a lot of times for people that's going to bring up more emotional turmoil which then it's you know you go reach for the next thing so are there any other tips for someone who is really struggling that might not be as as scary as jumping straight down into that deep end. Well, I tell people 
stop dieting if you can, because diets focus on what you're eating and not what is eating at you. And they distance you from your ability to eat um, intentionally, I think is what you would say. They, they distance you from yourself. Um, and then, then and get off the scale because the scale is a piece of plastic and metal that cannot measure your value and it can ruin your day. So just break up with the scale, throw it away. Did a video once where I smashed the scale. It was very satisfying. Smash <laughs> the scale, identify what's eating at you, you know, um, express what you're feeling, journal, talk to a friend, and then learn how to respond to yourself as you would to anybody else. Uh, I found that I find that people are super mean to themselves when they're super nice to everyone else. Talk to yourself as if you were a friend. I created a, an acronym because I love acronyms and it's vary your response. So validate, acknowledge and reassure yourself because when you can be kind to yourself, responsive, validating, all of those things, you feel better. Comfort words are ultimately so much more helpful and powerful than comfort food. Love all of those. I'm, I'm going to listen to this before I even publish it and I'm going to go back and take my own notes. It's, you know, we never stop learning. And while I already know a lot of this, it's such a beautiful refresher, even for me, because I, I think we can always take a look at our life and how are we feeling? Why are we feeling that? And it's getting, this conversation has really made me even more excited to continue the, the work that I do on myself for myself. Now, the last question that I have, and I know so many people deal with this one, why are we more prone to binging or emotional eating at night, right? Like you go, the lights are off, or you're just about to fall asleep and you're like, I'm really hungry. I'm really hungry, right? Or you're watching a show and it's always at night. Why, why is that in your experience? Well, during the day, we're busy. We're working, we're taking care of kids, we're working and taking care of kids, we're doing things, we're, we're busy, we're occupied. But at night, things slow down. And now we are with ourselves. And when we are with ourselves, it's very hard to go from being a human doing to being a human being when thoughts and feelings might become more available to our, us that we don't want to think about. Maybe in those quiet times, you st the woman who won it with the 20 pounds might have started thinking, oh, I don't really want to be with my husband right now. What's in the kitchen, right? right. It, so so it, it, it's when we are with ourselves and we don't know how to be with ourselves in a calming, generous, understanding, supportive way, we escape ourselves. The, the most common thing I see in all the people that I've ever treated for any eating disorder is from all genders, all walks of life, all different types of people, ages, whatever. The common feature is an inability to self-soothe and an ability to attack themselves like no other. So at night, that's when that attacker comes out or, you know, and, and we just want to avoid ourselves. The more we can learn to be with ourselves, the more that changes. Wow. I mean, just every single thing you've shared is incredibly profound. And, and I, I know I said this, but I just want to say thank you again for 
doing this work. And if I'm this impacted by it and listening to it, even though I already know a lot of these concepts and I've integrated, I really believe that this episode will will help people to feel less alone, to help help those listening to realize that it it's so much deeper. And at the end of the day, nothing it has nothing to do with the food. And I love that we touched on all different aspects of that. So Dr. Nina, where can people find you? I, obviously, I'll put it all in the show notes. I'm going to go buy all of your books and read them literally after this. I'm so excited. But where where do you want to direct people to go? Well, they can go to my website, which is Dr. Nina Inc., D-R-N-I-N-A-I-N-C.com. And uh, they can, through that, they can join my Facebook group. They can find uh, links to my book, which you can get on Amazon. Uh, the, 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 one, the newest one is... Um, Food for Thought is more academic book, but The Binge Cure, Seven Steps to Outsmart Emotional Eating, which is available in all formats, including audiobook where I read it to you. You can get that. You can find me on Instagram. I'm all over the place. Now even on TikTok. Just, oh my God. I love it. Yeah. Well, you're helping so many people. And I just wanted to say thank you so much, Dr. Nina. And until next week, here's to a sharper life. 